Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. Good to see you again. And welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. You know, it's about time. It's about time somebody came up with an answer to how to respond to the big lie. And you know what I'm talking about. The compounded big lie spread by Donald Trump that the 2020 election was stolen from him, that voter fraud is rampant in the United States, that voting machines are easily corrupted, and that, in fact, every election is fraudulent, except, of course, those elections that Trump or MAGA Republicans win. That's the big lie. But now comes the big truth. In a new book by the same name, The Big Truth, by Chief CBS News Washington correspondent Major Garrett and elections expert David Becker. Directly contradicting Donald Trump, Garrett and Booker proved that our elections, in fact, are the most secure in the world, that our state and local elections officials are the best and the most reliable in the world, and that there's almost zero evidence of voter fraud. There's nothing wrong with America's election system, they argue. The answer is to go out and win elections, not to whine about them. I had a chance to interview Major Garrett and David Becker a few days ago at Washington's Hill Center on their very timely new book. Every day I am reminded of something in the news about this book. And I go to this book, right, to get the latest updates. I want to start with the latest. Major, I'll start with you. There was a poll that came out yesterday that 71% of two polls, the Associated Press and the New York Times, 71% of Americans believe that democracy is on the line in these midterm elections. Are they right? Yes. (laughs) But not in the way you might think that affirmative answer might suggest. First of all, if you look at the polling data, Republicans and Democrats think that, but for different reasons. And the question about how safe, how secure, how durable our democracy is, is not one that David and I shy away from, because it's an answerable question. And we write in the book that Back in the 1990s, and Bill, you remember this era, or the early 2000s, there was a lot of political science research, and I know this because my wife's a political scientist, and lots of people who thought about democracy and elections, who wrote columns, wondering why turnout wasn't better, and was democracy dying from lack of interest and apathy. You might remember those stories. We're not in that scenario anymore. Mm-hmm. There's a tremendous amount of energy about democracy and what it is and how it functions and will it continue. We had record turnout in the 2018 midterm election, the highest in 100 years. We had the highest turnout in the 2020 presidential election of any presidential election in our country's history. We're going to have very high turnout in this midterm election. So at that level, democracy participating, voting, energy 
No, it's not in jeopardy in a classical sense, okay? Does it have risks built into some of the conversations around democracy? The answer absolutely is yes, and that's why we wrote this book. Some of the conversation around democracy is it doesn't function. We don't count votes. Something went wrong in 2020. We wrote this book to make it absolutely clear Nothing went functionally wrong with the 2020 election. You may not have liked the outcome. That happens with every election. We all know. But not only did nothing go wrong in 2020, we as a country did an amazing thing. We had the highest turnout, I mentioned that, most diverse electorate, in the teeth of a global pandemic without vaccines. Voting, whether you're an election worker or a voter, is a social process. You go to the polls, you work the polls. It's not on Zoom. You have to go there, you have to be there. You have to be up close. Risky thing during a pandemic, we all remember. And yet we, made, we, we, we achieved this thing, record turnout. With all these problems, all these uncertainties, all these required adaptations, that speaks to an underlying strength, a great resiliency in democracy, something that I, was sort of expecting, and David and I were sort of expecting, we would have celebrated as a country, as epitomizing really strong American traits, ingenuity, collaboration, cooperation, doing hard things under a lot of pressure, big deadline. Oh no, there wasn't a parade, there wasn't a celebration, there was a slandering. And that's the part of this equation that jeopardizes democracy, the slandering of an election because you weren't happy with the way it turned out. Obviously, when some people say democracy is in peril, they mean um, our election system is in peril because there are people running for office. Well, there's a former president who still insists he won and it was stolen. And a lot of people believe him. And there are people running for office today who want to really further undermine the basic democratic process. Then there are other people, when they say democracy is in peril today, they think that means because we're all going to become socialists the way we're going, right? So what does that tell us, this 71%, David? This dichotomy is actually the reason that we wrote the book. The reality, by any objective measure, of the 2020 election is, as Major said, it was one of the greatest triumphs of the American democratic process in history. We, if you look at the objective measurements of what we would look at for a successful democracy, a successful democratic process, we had more paper ballots that are verifiable, auditable, and recountable than ever before. 95% of all ballots in 2020 were paper, verifiable paper. Every single battleground state had paper. That wasn't the case in 2016, by the way. It was only about 75 to 80%. Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Pennsylvania all had significant numbers, if not entirely statewide, no paper no ability to audit or recount. We had more audits of those paper ballots than ever before, 43 states in DC, including all the battleground states, confirmed that the technology counted them correctly, most famously in Georgia, where they literally counted over 5 million paper ballots by hand. They didn't have paper ballots in 2016. We had more pre-election litigation to clarify the rules. On election night, everyone who was participating in the election knew those rules. Nobody liked all the rules, but they all knew those rules. And they went into this process knowing the rules and having a full opportunity to litigate them and clarify them. And then we had more post-election litigation in 2020 than we've ever had before. Over 60 cases, 
eight Trump-appointed judges unanimously found that there was absolutely no evidence to suggest that the, the outcome was wrong. And in fact, we sit here today on, on this date, 716 days since the November 2020 election. There has still not been one piece of evidence, not one shred of evidence presented to any court or law enforcement that would suggest that there was any problem with the, uh, with the 2020 election. And yet, we have tens of millions of people who have been lied to, have been targeted for grift, who've been exploited. Their sincere disappointment in the outcome of the election has been exploited. All the 74 million people who voted for former President Trump are not insurrectionists. They're, they're people who preferred President Trump to now President Biden, and they have been the target of a long grift. Their sincere disappointment has been exploited to lead them to believe that the only definition of a secure election is an election in which their candidate wins. <laughs> No democracy can survive that. Is there anyone in this country that, in a 50-50 divided country, that hasn't experienced a sincere disappointment and an electoral defeat in the last decade? I would suggest there isn't. That's the way elections work. There are winners, there are losers. We accept the outcome and the will of the voters. Sometimes our side wins, sometimes our side loses. That is being turned on its head. That is, that is an unsustainable position for a democracy. It cannot sustain itself, it cannot survive if a significant percentage of people cannot accept defeat when the outcome is so clear and when the process is so secure and has so much uh, integrity. I certainly, that certainly resonates with me as someone who has probably voted for more losers than winners. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a Democrat, what can I say? But uh, Bill, in your previous life in California, you know what it means when we say when everyone knows the rules, you've got to play by the rules and win under the rules. Absolutely. That's what, that's what state parties do. That's what national parties do. That's what candidates do. That's the way it works. No. You, I, may, you, you, you may litigate before. The only thing you can litigate after is if there is a demonstrable, provable, evidentiary-based violation of those rules or disenfranchisement. That's the only way you can have standing. You I, know that. No, I know that as a volunteer. I know it as a campaign manager. I know it as a candidate who lost and then moved on, accepted the result. Right. Uh, I know that as a former state chair mm -hmm. uh, of California. But now, I, now I, don't, I don't want you to cross the line into partisanship at all, but if you really do believe that our, the fundamental, our democracy itself is at stake in that our election, election system, the, the integrity of our election system is at stake, What is that? What do you have to do this in these midterm elections to correct that? Is there anything you can do? Well, part of it or is. Let me ask if I answer another. Can you possibly vote for? Can you possibly defend democracy and vote for an election denier at the same time? Many millions of Americans will. Well, that's not doesn't answer my question, Major. But millions <laughs> of Americans will, and that's yeah. why this conversation is so vital. It's why we wrote the book because it. It goes to a deeper thing where the idea of denying the 2020 election or raising questions about it, which isn't really what happens, it's full denialism, has now become a litmus test within the nominating process of the Republican Party. That's not sustainable for the Republican Party, okay? David McCormick ran for the Senate nomination as a Republican in Pennsylvania. He trailed Mehmet Oz by about 1,000 votes. He was entitled to a recount. The recount began, and about a third of the way through, David McCormick called it off. Why? For the same reason that anyone who trails by 1,000 votes who's granted a recall calls it off. They're not going to catch up. 
A thousand votes isn't close. It looks close, but it's not close. And David McCormick saw the math. His team said, you're not going to catch up. Call it a day. So under the system that Pennsylvania had in 2020, through a process where the votes were cast and counted, a thousand votes wasn't going to be overcome. In Arizona, Carrie Lake ran for governor as a Republican. She said before the votes were cast, there was fraud in that election. While the votes were being cast, she said there was fraud being committed. And then something very interesting happened. She went ahead. And as soon as she went ahead, the fraud disappeared. <laughs> okay, th th this, is, this is playing out in real time. This is evidentiary proof that the underlying system does work and that people who raise these fraud alarms are doing so tactically, not genuinely. And our argument, our very strong, passionate argument in this book is you cannot treat the solidity of this system and slandering it as a tactic. That's out of bounds. That is completely out of bounds for both parties. And we fear a world in which this tactical orientation to the safety and security of our elections becomes endemic. And if it does, we're done. So, David, you've studied elections. This is your work, your yeah. life's work. Mm -hmm. how, how would you rate the security and stability of the American electoral system? So, first, I want to point out to everyone who's listening, and I don't think everyone realizes we run some of the most complex elections in the world. We're incredibly decentralized. We have about 10,000 individual election jurisdictions in the country. We rely upon tens of thousands of professional election workers, Republicans, Democrats, nonpartisans. We rely upon hundreds of thousands of volunteer poll workers. We run elections a lot. There's a saying in most election offices, if it's Tuesday, it must be election day. Because elections don't happen once every two years. They happen all the time. Mm -hmm. If you're from California, as I am, and we are, I mean, I, all it, of is, us are. it is, um, I mean, there, there's literally two dozen elections in a calendar year. It doesn't matter whether it's an odd year or an even-numbered year. They happen all the time. Election workers are constantly working. Not only are elections very decentralized, and we have a lot of elections, but anyone who's voted, particularly in states like California or Florida and others, know there are dozens of races on the ballot, and sometimes the ballot has dozens of pages. Elsewhere in the world, when they go to vote, they go to vote once every few years, and there is one race on the ballot. It is for their, usually their member of parliament or for their national leader in a nationally coordinated single election. In France, one of the election deniers' uh, latest things, and this came up in Arizona, is France hand counts ballots immediately on election night. Why can't we do that in the United States? In France, they have one race. They have one colored piece of paper that you put into an envelope and hand to someone. You're in and out of the polling place in 10 seconds. Have any of you been in and out of the polling place in 10 seconds in the United States of America? You'll be lucky if you can get out in 10 minutes if you really know who you're going to vote for. It's very, very complex. And yet with all that complexity, we have been building up professionalism in this country for two decades extraordinarily well. Just think of Florida as an example. In 2000, Florida was an international laughingstock with legitimate election administration problems. In 2020, Thanks to the men and women, the county election officials in Florida, Republicans and Democrats, Florida was an international model. They offered easy vote by mail, easy early in-person voting, easy election day voting. They counted their ballots. They knew exactly what the outcomes were at 9.30 p.m. on election night. That shows you about the professionalism that has developed over time. And it is unquestionable, and I've been watching this for 25 years. I actually go farther back over to the Clinton administration. Um, 
We, are, we have the most secure, accessible elections that we've ever had in the United States of America right now, which is not to say that they won't improve over time, and it will. But we are as professionally secure and accessible as we ever have been, and we should celebrate that fact. We should have confidence in that fact and know that sometimes, I know this is crazy, in a democracy that's 50-50, your candidate might lose. Wrap your arms around that for a second. I mean, that shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody, but we are now in a position where we're seeing losing candidates, and I use the plural intentionally now because it's not just the former president. It is a whole circle of grifters that has surrounded him who are profiting off of this grift, who are selling the big lie that unless we win, we literally heard this from a candidate in Arizona the other day on CNN, that I will accept the verdict if I win, period. That's all. I wonder who he That's heard not that how it works. Well, yeah. yeah. Back to, again, this morning, I saw picked this up, and I went right back to the book. Uh, there's a new poll out today from uh, AP and mm -hmm. NORC, whoever yep. they are, by the way. I'm not really sure. Um, and they asked the question, is our democracy working well? Mm -hmm. David, I accept everything you said. Nine percent. Right. Nine percent of Americans said our democracy is working well. Right. Now, some on the left have questions with the functionality of our democracy. They look at the popular vote total. Does it translate to House representative representation? No, it doesn't. That looks to be a structural flaw to some people who would describe themselves as either as liberals or progressives or Democrats. See, wait a minute, the popular vote is this, yet when we translate it through redistricting, it gets watered down into something much smaller. There's frustrations about the filibuster. Does the filibuster feel consistent with our understanding in the modern era of democracy and a functioning democracy when states with much less population have as much clout as states with much larger population and the filibuster requiring the 60 vote threshold Will anyone, will either party ever get to that? And if not, how do we think, work these things through? That goes to questions of functionality of democracy. So I think it can be interpreted broadly in, that, in a poll like that. What David and I are saying is those are bigger, broader questions. And they do go to how comfortable Americans are with the way this constitutional republic, Republicans always remind me, we don't have a pure democracy in a main. Andrew Garrett, we have a constitutional republic. Yes, it's true. How do we, how, how, what, what is our comfortability with that? And these, these strictures, is the filibuster outdated? That's something that will be constantly debated in the United States Senate and political pressure will apply as that debate continues. Same thing in the House of Representatives. California was among the first states to have an independent commission to set up districting lines after the census was taken. Other states are moving in that direction. That's an adaptation. So there are lots of ways in which people find, in the last, I think, 10 or 15 years, areas in which they're less satisfied than they used to be. What we talk about is how we cast and count ballots and trying to end this idea that denialism about that process can in any way be legitimate or defended. But if there's that lack of confidence in our democratic process, how do we fix it? Well, so, so we, we answer the question in the book, do we know who got more votes than their opponent? 100% yes. We know that better than we ever have, and we can transparently show our work 
And we've done that repeatedly. And when I say we, I mean we as a society, we've done that. In fact, many of the people who questioned the election, over 100 plus members of Congress, many members of state legislatures, literally gained the authority to question the outcome of the election because they were elected on the very same ballots they were questioning. Again, wrap your mind about the, around this for a second. The very same pieces of paper, every single member of Congress that was questioning the outcome of the election was on that same piece of paper. Okay? So, so we know the answer to that. There are bigger policy questions about democracy, redistricting, the electoral college, various state laws that differ. They're, those are all legitimate. Those are all within the boundaries of democracy. But what we have right now is a fundamental lack of accepting of reality. A lack, you know, we have one side, and it's not just Democrats, by the way. There are many brave Republicans who have said this as well, who says the sky is blue. And we have another side that says the sky is polka dotted. That's not two sidesism. One of those things is absolutely, definably, verifiably true. And we have to accept that. Now, are there other issues in our democracy that we have to address? 100%. But the democratic process, elections, is how we resolve those. Mm -hmm. If we under, this is a point Major was just making. If we undermine the very foundation, the very fundamentals by which we resolve our disputes, we're not a we're not a democracy. We're not a constitutional republic anymore. We we will devolve into anarchy, and we're starting to see some of that. And mm -hmm. and the use of political violence as a tool. I, I just want to point out one other quick thing, which is that you know we talk about this in the book. There have been other near crises in our past. Mm -hmm. The 1960 presidential election was very close, decided by one state. And the sitting vice president was a candidate, the losing candidate. And he, Vice President Nixon, presided over the Electoral College victory of his opponent. 2000, the same thing, opposite. Democratic vice sitting vice president was the losing candidate in one state that was decided by 537 votes. And that sitting vice president presided over the Electoral College victory of his opponent. Um, they were both patriots in that circumstance to do what they did. They put the country above themselves and their party. This is the first time in American history we've seen someone who lost, let's be honest, not a particularly close election. It was the widest margin of any presidential election in the 21st century where Barack Obama wasn't on the ballot by a large margin, 7 million votes, minimum of three states deciding this election. And instead, we've seen a campaign run for nearly two years, and actually it predates that it goes longer than two yeah. years, as we point out in the book. Of, and we've learned from the January 6th committee where this was being planned even before they knew they were, they were going to lose the election. Um, this undermining of the very foundation by which we resolve our disputes in this country. By the way, I would add to that, for this purpose only, uh, add to the list of patriots Richard Nixon and Al Gore and Mike Pence. Yes, absolutely. Uh, who refused to do what the president wanted him to do and single-handedly named the next president of the United States. Right. It's gotten so serious, Major. And you talk about this in the book. Mm -hmm. By the way, you guys get to some really direct and um, very specific improvements that you think we should, steps we should make to sure. improve the process, which I want to get to. Mm -hmm. but, but first, you talk about this in the book, and we hear it a lot. People talking about, particularly I might say on the extreme right, about civil war. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw today that uh, the day... August 8th, when the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago, um, on Twitter, the mention of the need for the possibility of civil war yeah. went up 300, 3,000%. You know, uh, Stuart Rhodes, who's on trial right yep. now, says, we're not going to get through this. 
yeah. without a civil war. But you've had some Republican lawmakers talk about civil war. Play what footsie does that with do? this concept. What does yeah. that do to the discussion? So we open the book uh, by quoting someone who we think could offer some insight on this very important question. Finian O'Toole is a writer for the Irish Times. He grew up in the Troubles in Northern Ireland. He wrote a piece in The Atlantic that said, let me tell you something about talking about civil war. The more you talk about it, the more likely it is to happen. It creates an energy all of its own. A verbal, a rhetorical energy, a psychic energy. And it makes this thing you're talking about casually more likely to happen. Not inevitable, but more likely to happen. Now, I, would, I consider him, that's why he's in the introduction of the book, much more of an authority on this large topic than I am. I have my fears. I have no lived experience. Vinnie O'Toole has lived experience. So we took that on board as a way to say, all right, David Becker and Major Garrett may not, might not know very much about civil war and its rhetoric and its rhetorical implications. But here's a guy who does. And what is really important about what you mentioned about the Mar-a-Lago execution of a search warrant is that there was a distinct migration. There was plenty of talk before January 6th about civil war, but they were embedded in the deeper recesses of the web, the darker corners of the web. Yeah. After the Mar-a-Lago execution of the search warrant, Twitter, Facebook, other places that are much more commonly trafficked and are much, much more broadly monitored and observed and observable, there was this very intense migration. So what does that tell us? That tells us that those who are speaking this way feel more empowered to speak this way and don't feel any either societal pressure not to do that or hesitation or maybe even work consequences or anything else. That to me is a dangering, worrying sign. Mm -hmm. um, and the sense of alienation and resentment vividly on display January 6th is something all of us should take on board. Because as David said, not everyone who is disappointed with the 2020 election or raises questions about it is an insurrectionist. But those who were there, many of them were. And they were attacking the Capitol, saying, this is our house. And because it's our house, we're going to destroy it. Now, that's a kind of mental process that really needs to be looked at. It's my house, and I'm here to destroy it. Wow. I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's a long road to travel, psychologically. Okay? And one of the things we talk about in the book is that part of what this denialism is about isn't about, obviously, the evidence. It really hasn't ever been. But under closer and closer scrutiny, it can't possibly be. But it is about a sense of identity and attachment and psychology and what is my part in the American story. And alienation from that pulls you away from institutional norms. It pulls you away from traditions. It pulls you away from all the rhetorical flourishes of the person who helped bank this building, Abraham Lincoln. And that distance is not going to be closed overnight. But I do believe, David and I wouldn't have written this book if we didn't believe it was closable, because yeah. these facts are never going to change. They just aren't. Okay, Major and David, just hold on just a second. We'll take a quick break. 
Uh, and we'll come back and continue to talk about Americans' elections, what's right with them and what may be wrong with them, if anything. And meanwhile, friends, in the last couple of weeks, we told you about two of the most important Senate races in the country, Pennsylvania, where Democrat John Fetterman is going to be the next U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania. Uh, and in Ohio, Tim Ryan running a hell of a campaign. He'll be the next Democratic Senator from Ohio. Let's talk this week about Georgia. Georgia is a historic contest between Herschel Walker, Republican candidate, probably the least qualified man ever to run for the United States Senate, and Senator Raphael Warnock, our Democratic senator from Georgia, who is one of the best qualified and the most upright people ever to serve in the United States Senate. It is a disgrace that Republicans have put up Herschel Walker as a candidate and stuck with him despite his disreputable character. I mean, it would be an embarrassment to the entire country for Herschel Walker to be elected. We can't let that happen. So please do what you can. Go to warnockforgeorgia.com, warnockforgeorgia.com, and throw in whatever help you can in these last few days of the midterms to help Senator Raphael Warnock hold on to that job and represent the people of Georgia and the entire country in the United States Senate. Thank you. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with Major Garrett, CBS News, David Becker, elections expert, here at the Hill Center talking about their new book, The Big Truth. David, you are in touch with election officials around the country um, every day. Um, tell us what some of the stories that you hear about the pressure that they're facing. Are they, these are the people on the front lines. Yeah. Right. I mean, these are a lot of them are volunteers. Right. A lot of people, their, their whole job is just to get down there and, in a very nonpartisan way, run an honest election, right? Right. What do you hear? The, the job of an election official in this country is not the fast track to fame and fortune. Okay? <laughs> um, it, uh, if, you ask, if you ask most of the people who are in elections how they got, on, got into it, um, they got into it by accident. They applied for a job, they got it. And they stayed because they found a calling to serve and facilitate democracy and give voice to the voters. Um, and this is true of conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats and everyone in between. Um, their best case scenario in a good election is anonymity, is that no one's talking about the election on Wednesday. 
right? Um, their worst case scenario um, got a lot worse over the last two years. And what they've experienced, and I, I, I mean, my work, I run a, a nonprofit that works with election officials, Republicans and Democrats all over the country. Um, that nonprofit runs the Election Official Legal Defense Network, which pairs pro bono attorneys with, with election officials who need them. And one of the things that strikes me is that I'm very proud of the fact that we can pair election officials with attorneys who can give them advice and support that they need. Um, and I'm incredibly saddened that we live in a country where a nonprofit like mine needs to find lawyers to provide pro bono support to civil servants just to get basic advice on things like um, my local sheriff is pounding on my door looking to seize voting machines right now. Um, that I know that's illegal, I, but what do I do? Um, they have been subjected to two years of harassment, um, not because they did a bad job, but because they did an outstanding job and people don't like the outcome. And by the way, something to realize, and we, we talk about this a lot in the book, and there's stuff in the book to challenge people across the political spectrum, I think you'll find, I hope, hope you find, there's, there's some things for everyone to hate in the book, um, uh, hopefully in a good way. But um, it's probably Republicans who are facing these threats and harassment even more than Democrats, in my experience. Some of the reddest areas of the country, some of the areas that went 80-20 for Trump with conservative Republican election officials who voted for Trump, the grifters who are roaming the countryside looking to corrupt election officials are targeting them in particular. They're harassing them. They're convincing their county boards and their county attorneys and their county law enforcement to harass them. And when they go home at night, unlike election officials in bluer areas where they might, the people might be happier with the outcome and not be inclined to challenge it, they have no sanctuary. Their own families in some cases think they stole the election despite all evidence that they didn't. I mean, you, you talk to people like Secretary Raffensperger in Georgia, who is no rhino. He's a conservative Republican. I know him very well. Major has gotten to know him. Mm -hmm. I mean, he did his duty. Secretary Barbara Sagaski in Nevada, conservative Republican, did her duty. The members of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors did their duty, predominantly Republicans. Commissioner Al Schmidt, a Republican in Philadelphia, did his duty. This is the case all across the country. It's remarkable. We have tens of thousands of election officials, and these roving, roving brands of grifters have gone around seeking to corrupt them, to get them to violate their oath of office. And the numbers who have actually committed a crime, I can count on one hand. It's remarkable how much integrity this group has. It's what inspires me. It's what even when I get depressed about some of these things or we get a little bit pessimistic about where things are in this country, I look to this group of individuals who it, their, their best case scenario is anonymity and they keep doing the job. Um, it's, it, it, it's, it's amazing that we have that in this country. And we should respect that. And by the way, if for any of you who are thinking about it or even if you're not thinking about it, Volunteer to be a poll worker. You'll see this from the inside. You'll see how many checks and balances are in place. You'll see why you have to show up a few hours ahead of time before the polls open and stay hours afterwards. It's because you're checking so many boxes under scrutiny of transparency, of redundancies that have to happen to make sure that they can show all of their work and, and, and it can withstand scrutiny. Uh, the book, again, The Big Truth, it, it, it will, I think, leave you like it left me with hope that we're going to get through this. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that we have a great system that we just have to defend and embrace. One, one of the catchphrases so, that uh, David and I invented on behalf of the book is uh, survive Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you know what I'm getting at. Uh, the, the subtitle is Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie, and that's really the challenge. 
Uh, there are a couple of specific, you, you have a list of fixes. Here are some things we should do, some that are pretty basic. One of the big ones, Major, I want to ask you if there's a, a bill in Congress to amend the, what was it, 1887 right. Electoral Count Act, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, how important is that? What does it do? And what are its chances? Well, it's got good chances. It looks like it's going to be a lame duck session item. The House has passed a version. The Senate has passed a version. They've been in collaboration quietly, talking to each other about the various differences and similarities of the bill. It would clarify language that, and I will defer to David on this because uh, he is the election law expert, uh, that law written after the 1876 election, and if you want to uh -huh. read yeah. a barn burner of American politics and drama, read about the 1876 election. It is an amazing story. If I may, Gore yes. Vidal has got a book, yes. 1876. 1876, yes, phenomenal book. It really is. All about and, yep. and that is probably, in our history, an election which you could say, and academics have really dived into this, you may not know actually, because of the voting irregularities, to put it mildly, in three states in particular, who actually won. But there was a larger question facing the nation, the fate of Reconstruction, and that became a political point of negotiation to resolve this question. And that's how it was resolved. And so the Electoral Count Act was written after that to sort of explain or try to explain or put some language around what the actual procedures were should a circumstance like that arise again. Now, the, as we say in the book, scabrous legal interpretation foisted on a willing sitting president of the United States by John Eastman was there was some cheat code in that language that empowered the vice president to not only circumvent that process of certifying electoral votes sent to Congress, but actually kind of decide the presidency yeah. from that power. Yeah, there, there's... Uh, I want to be clear, whether the Electoral Count Act is reformed or not, the Constitution is clear. There is no constitutional cheat code. The vice president, sitting vice president, does not get to decide the presidency on January 6th. <laughs> the Electoral Count Act of 1887, in the, after the unique circumstances of the 1876 election, which were legitimate doubt about what had happened and whether people had been massively disenfranchised in some of the states in the Old South and other things along those lines, made clear, tried to make clear that what the founders, the drafters of the Constitution intended was that January 6th was a ceremony. It was, I, I equate it to the Oscars. You're not, the audience doesn't get to vote on who the best picture is at the Oscars. We open an envelope and we find out where the votes have already been counted. The only difference between the Oscars and the January 6th is we already know who the, what the envelope's gonna say when it's opened. Because in 2020, as in every previous modern election, we had, one person who had received a majority of the certified electoral college votes that had been sent and certified at the National Archives by the deadline of mid-December. That's clear even under the existing Electoral Count Act. The current versions of the, the current drafts that are being considered, there's some slight differences, but they're both very good and they're both very importantly bipartisan with true input from both sides of the aisle, with buy-in from both sides of the aisle, and they clarify January 6th is a ceremony. 
The vice president is the MC. The vice president is not the great decider. And the one thing it does change is it raises the threshold for objections so that a tiny minority of members of Congress cannot hijack the entire process and send it into chaos. It requires various levels. There's some difference of opinion. That'll be worked out in conference. And one thing I'd like to make a point about the 1876 election, <clears throat> because there were very significant doubts, and this great question hung over the country, the future of Reconstruction. It was not a small matter. Neither Samuel Tilden nor Rutherford B. Hayes, at any point, through emissaries or themselves, questioned the process of the election itself or the ultimate way it was resolved through a congressionally appointed committee. At no point did they raise any structural or substantive objections or cast doubt that this could be resolved, that we could peaceably find an answer to this question. At no point, with all these things at stake, yeah. Reconstruction, the future of the country, them becoming president or not, they never indulged for even a split second in casting any rhetorical doubt that we as a country could sort this out. Uh, final thing I want to ask you about, which, is, uh, which troubles me. There is a uh, case before the Supreme Court this year that has not gotten as much attention, I believe, as it should. Uh, which I think it's referred to as the independent state legislature argument, that um, state legislatures have the authority under the Constitution <coughs> basically to decide the electors that they're going to send to Washington. Uh, they could be a different slate of electors than were voted upon by the people, decided by the people, according to them. And this case is what the case they want the Supreme Court to agree with, and that the courts of that state have no jurisdiction over whatever the state legislature does. I'd like to add that this week, every chief justice of every one of the 50 states signed a statement to the Supreme Court opposing yeah. that case, yeah. right? Red states, blue states, yeah. every single one of them. But this is in front of the Clarence Thomas Court. What's going to happen? So so I'll tell you, this is the Moore case out of North Carolina. It primarily deals with the redistricting that was undertaken by the North Carolina legislature. Uh, it's set for oral argument before the United States Supreme Court on December 7th. We're not very far from there. For those of us that are members of the Supreme Court bar, we might find our way there to listen to the argument. Um, so I will tell you honestly, um, this is going to be my most optimistic. So I hope, hope everyone's paying attention because we've been a little bit down on some things in the past. Um, I will tell you that I, I, I am not that worried about this case, mm. and I might be in the minority on that. I, the arguments being made are exactly as you suggest. It's not just with regard to electoral votes. It is that elections are reserved to the states, to the state legislatures in the Constitution. And some people have read that, since it only says legislature, that it just means legislature. They're not subject to state court review or state yeah. executive modification. Right. That can mean electoral votes. It can mean redistricting. It could mean any electoral policies or, or, or procedures. Um, even most of the people bringing this case, including the RNC, do not suggest that it goes that far. It, there, there is very good legal um, justification for the idea, and this is in the Constitution, election day is election day. 
Every race is decided on election day. It might take longer to count. That's okay. That's always been the case. It's certainly been the case earlier in our history. It's still the case now. But the decision is made on election day. We're just counting the votes to find out what it was. You can't change that decision after election day. You can't change the electoral votes if you don't like them. Um, and I, we, I think most of us think, most observers think, that it's very unlikely the court's going to take a radical interpretation that way. Another key point being, and, and Judge Ludig, who's a very conservative former mm -hmm. um, uh, appellate court judge who was on the short list for W. Bush to be on the Supreme Court, um, who I've gotten to know quite well, has written very eloquently on this and pointed out, and I agree with him 100%, that state, the state legislature, as that term was used in the Constitution, was written with the knowledge that those state legislatures were created under state constitutions that also conferred the right upon state courts to review the decisions of those legislatures so that they would be consistent with those state constitutions. I, I, I think amongst the people that I talk about with this, I will say there is some risk there. There are some radical interpretations that could be held by some on the court. Um, I think if you know, I think one possible outcome here. I try to get away from predictions. Is that there is a reason this case was taken now, and will be decided in June of 2023 publicly. And I suspect that the reason is the Supreme Court wants to resolve this and make clear going into the 2024 election that no, 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 state legislatures are not dictators. They are not. They don't get to rule without. Um, any review about whether they have complied with their own state constitutions. They're not the final arbiter of that. And so there will be some limits placed on that, even if that decision is ultimately in favor of the North Carolina legislature that, that, that drew the redistricting. And even if you look at this from a basic civics point of view, the Constitution wasn't the only document we had in this country. We had the Articles of Confederation before that, and we had states that were deeply empowered, and they had to be convinced to join a larger, more integrated union in which there was a deep discussion about the relative strength and powers of this larger federal government in relation to state governments. And state governments under the Articles of Confederation had an independence that was at some level watered down to join the Constitutional Republic. And the, the part of that conversation was, what would be the executive powers within the right. state? What would be the judicial review within the state? So even if you're an originalist, even if you come down on the origins of the country, you have to understand that underlying history as basic civics to see that this would be very much throwing out of balance, checks and balances at the state level, which are replicated at the federal level. And for those who are interested, go look for Judge Ludig's piece. It was, it's an excellent piece. It was written in the last few weeks. And I just saw on Twitter tonight that Judge Ludig joined with former Obama Solicitor General Neil Katchall on, um, on an amicus brief. That will also be good reading on this. You'll see how people with different judicial philosophies, one very conservative, one very liberal, have joined together in a view of this that I think is consistent with the Constitution. Let me close with this. You, uh, the last part of your book is very upbeat. Uh, where do we go from here? Uh, you point out, um, which struck me, that in 2026, 2026, mm -hmm. we will celebrate the 250th birthday mm -hmm. of our democracy. My final question to each of you is, will our democracy still be around to celebrate? Yes, it will. I, I, I fundamentally believe that. I really do. Uh, and here's some good news. Um, most people who evaluate the parts of American history that stress this country out the most, 
that raised the greatest existential questions about the American experiment, Site 2, the Civil War and Vietnam. All right? Most people who wrote about Vietnam as it was becoming a greater and greater public crisis in this country said we, America had not been as divided since the Civil War. Okay, the Civil War was a structural defect of this country that after 20 years of attempting to seek legislative compromise, there was only way, one way to solve it. A war had to be fought and one side had to lose and the union had to prevail. Okay? Structural defect could not be resolved any other way. Vietnam was a war prosecuted that proved over time unsustainable to the pe people on whose half it was being fought and whose taxpayer dollars were supporting it. There was no way to solve that problem, the war, the death of American GIs, without ending the war. Okay? Those were two structural problems that divided the country that could not be resolved any other way. Here we have division, but the good news is we have no structural problem at the root of it. We have no structural problem at the root of this division. Our elections are really good, better than they've ever been. That truth is this what gives me core and everlasting optimism. That truth is not going anywhere. That truth isn't budging, it just needs a little help. And that's it uh, for our program at the Hill Center and for today's podcast. Again, Major Garrett, the uh, chief Washington correspondent for CBS News, elections expert David Becker, their new book, The Big Truth. And there'll be a link in the episode notes to today's podcast where you get your copy of The Big Truth, a very important and a very uh, encouraging book about U.S. elections and exactly how good they are, the model for the entire world. That's it for today. We'll be back on Friday again with our Reporters Roundtable, looking back at all the big news of the week this week from Washington, uh, the next to last week before the midterm elections. Very important time. I'm sure it'll be a lively roundtable on Friday. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you then. Come back on Friday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.